You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we are amazed at your holiness that you would not be so appalled by our sin that you would hide your face from us. But in a way that didn't compromise your holiness, you came for us. You didn't hide from us, you came for us. And then you became like one of us and took all of our sin upon yourself so that you could erase our sin and our guilt and our shame, and so that we could come into your holy presence, so that we could have a new hope, a new hope rather than the fear of judgment. We have the hope of seeing Jesus come in the clouds. We have the hope of Jesus coming back again, that we would receive all that you've promised to give. Oh, Lord, when we see your face, you promise that we'll be made like you in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. You promise that when we see you, we'll be caught up with you. You say that when we see you, we will be with you forever. So we are to encourage one another with these words. And we are to sing these truths to one another as we have just sung. And we bless you and praise you because we know when we see Christ, we will be made like him. Even now, As we read the scriptures, the Spirit of God comes and gives us the contours of Christ that we might see the face of Christ in the picture of scripture, that we would see Jesus in the gospel and be changed. So even now, even now, that's how powerful the gospel is. It lets us see the face of Jesus and we are changed. And so I pray that today as we look into your word, God, would you change us that we would not be the same people in 30 minutes from now as we are right this moment, but you would change us for our good and for your glory. Help us see Jesus, we now pray in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you grab your seats, feel free to grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 It's where we're going to be. Today, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's not a problem. We have some Bibles, and the ushers are coming up and down the aisle handing those out right now. Uh, We want to make sure you're able to read along, so just raise your hand, and they'll give a Bible to you if you don't have one. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is on page 685 in those Bibles being handed out. About 17 years ago, in 1999, NASA set their sights on Mars. They had decided to launch a probe into space that would take all these measurements of the environment and the climate of Mars. And so, after launching this $125 million probe into space, they realized that something was wrong they found out and discovered quite quickly that uh, their space engineers, there was some of them who had used a metric system of measurement in their programming of this probe, and another team had used the imperial system. And they didn't tell each other. 
And so this thing, even though it was pointing in the right direction, even though it had Mars in its aim, it had been hardwired and programmed to fail from the beginning because of human error. That's an expensive error. But honestly, we're not too different from this. In fact, we're worse. Uh, See, God has made us to aim and to aim for him, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what we're supposed to do. But something happened because of human error, because we decided it would be a better idea to trust ourselves, to put our faith in ourselves rather than trust God, we rebelled and we sinned against God and we fell. Everything was broken. All of our programming got distorted and twisted. So even at launch, even at launch, we're not even aiming in the right direction anymore, let alone we have no programming that will correct our course and get us back on track. All of our wiring is twisted so that we're now entirely bent to sin and to stray. Genesis 5 verse 6 says, how the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is messed up. I mean, that is, you can't get more messed up than that. And Psalm 14 says how the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, and this is his assessment. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Because of the fall, because of our sin, we're hardwired now to sin. We're just bent towards sin. We're not aiming in the right direction. In fact, we're just totally bent on going after other things. We are so committed to love ourselves, to trust ourselves, and we come up with all these sophisticated ways to try to delight ourselves by setting our target on various earthly things. Rocketing from one moving target to another, hoping this will be it. This is what will satisfy this time. This is what I'm going to find my significance, my purpose. This is what's going to satisfy. But we always miss. We always stray. We always wander. We never hit our target. Because we weren't meant to make those things our greatest aim. So as a result... We wander and stray. And so my question is this, what are you aiming at? What are you aiming at in your life? What is the thing that you have in your sights that you've targeted? That's what you think is gonna bring you ultimate satisfaction. Maybe you're aiming at significance. Maybe you're aiming at significance. Maybe you want to work 15 hours or 20 hours a day just so you can climb the corporate ladder and get that office job with the desk and the window so you can be somebody, finally be somebody. Because that is your definition of significance. And so that's what you're aiming at. Maybe your definition or maybe the thing you're aiming at is popularity. Maybe you, your goal in life is to have as many followers on Facebook, as many likes as possible, as many people on Twitter following you as possible because you want to be popular. 
or you're willing to do anything at school, whatever is said, whatever is done, you're willing to do it just to make friends, just so you can be popular. Maybe that's what you're aiming at. Maybe you're aiming at fame. Maybe the thing that you want most is fame. You want to be the, the greatest musician, the greatest athlete ever, so that people can applaud you and love you and adore you. Or maybe it's respect. Maybe that's what you're aiming at. And you try to make your kids be absolutely perfect so that everyone would notice how amazing you are. And they're always coming up to you and saying, how do you do it? Because you love their honor. You love their admiration and respect. Is that what you're aiming at? Maybe you're aiming at comfort. Maybe you're aiming at comfort and maybe... You're like the other guy who works 15, 20 hours a day, not because you're aiming for significance, but you're aiming for comfort and you don't want to go home because it's so broken. There's so much pain at home, you just stay at work and you keep working and you keep working because you're aiming for comfort. If I just get that, that's, that's going to be the solution. Or maybe you aim for comfort in a different way. Maybe you try to calm your fears and anxieties in your life by going to the shopping mall with a credit card and maxing it out, or going to the fridge and emptying it out. What are you aiming at? What's the thing that you have set in your sights that you are aiming at with all of your life? This is what's gonna bring me satisfaction. There's a lot of things to aim at. And it's not wrong to aim. <laughs> the problem isn't aiming. We were made to aim. We were made to be on mission. We were made to be given a direction and a purpose in life. That's not the issue. The issue is what you're aiming at. The issue is what is the object of your aim. And the reality is, is that we were made to aim for greater things. We were made to aim for a greater someone. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me. This is David writing, and he says, I have set the Lord, I have set the Lord in my sights. I'm aiming for the Lord always because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, this is what happens when you set your sights and aim on the Lord. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This is what we were made for. We were made to set our aim, the aim of our love, fully on the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And when you love the Lord like that, you cannot help. It just overflows that you begin loving others. Other people, people made in the image of God, you can't help it. They go together. 1 John 4, 21 says that this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. They go together. And this is why we put it on banners on either side here of the mission statement of the church, the mission statement that Jesus gave his church to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the great commandment, which means the great commandment is this in Matthew 22, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And let love drive you as you love God. You can't help but loving your neighbor and telling them about Jesus and making them a disciple of Christ. And that is more and more people love God and worship God as they ought to, as they were made to, 
It glorifies him. It displays how worthy God is of all of this trust and love and worship. That's why we have it on banners. We want to keep it in front of us. We want to make sure that we're targeting the right thing. We want to make sure we're aiming at this over and over and over again. So how do we do this? How do we go about making the Lord the aim of our love? How do we go about doing this in such a broken world with such broken hearts? That's where 1 Timothy chapter 1 comes into play. It's so helpful here in describing how we do this. So if your finger is still there in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, just go down to verse 5. Verse 5 says this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues, that comes from, that comes out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, Paul was writing this letter of 1 Timothy to Timothy. That's why we call it 1 Timothy. It's the first of two letters that Paul writes to Timothy because Paul is getting near the end of his life. He wants to faithfully pass the baton on to Timothy. He wants to make sure that Timothy knows what the priorities are. And out of all the responsibilities that he is given to Timothy, that he is to go and spread the gospel, telling people that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He wanted to make sure that in all of the spreading of the gospel that Timothy's going to do, that he wouldn't forget the main thing, the main aim in all his responsibilities, the main aim in all of his charge, his mission, his life, and that is to love. It's to love. Now, what's interesting is that Paul assumes Timothy can do this. Paul assumes that Timothy actually has the capacity and the ability to love God and to love others, to actually carry out the charge, to carry out the mission that Jesus has given and that Paul is giving and reiterating to Timothy, which is surprising in light of everything we just read about in our hearts, what sin has done and how messed up they are. Why would Paul think that Timothy could actually do what he's telling Timothy to do? Something must have changed. Something new must have happened. And that's where 1 Timothy is so helpful in explaining these things that God has done. There are three things that God has done that radically changes our situation, radically changes our hearts, So that we're able to do the very thing we were made to do. To aim our love at God and to love others. And the first of these three things that God has done is that he's given us a new source of love. A new source of love, which is a pure heart. He's given us a new source of love, a pure heart. Verse 5 says that the... The aim of our charge is love that issues from, that comes from a pure heart. Now, the heart that's being talked about here isn't the one that is physically beating in your chest right now. It's the one that is beating in your soul. It's the spiritual heart. 
when the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about that spiritual side of you, uh, where there's the way you think and the way you feel and your ability to choose volitionally, uh, making choices. That's your spiritual side. To be human, and there's a spiritual part and there's a physical part. He's not talking about your physical heart that's thumping. It's your spiritual heart that is guiding your thoughts and your emotions and your decisions. And he's saying, this is the heart that he has in mind. And because of the sin that we have done and the sin that we have inherited from our ancestors, from Adam and Eve, our hearts are so, are so damaged. Are so damaged. In fact, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that our hearts are deceptively wicked and sick on their own. They're so bad, it's not like you can just tweak it a little bit. It's not like you can just kind of go, go in and just fix it a little and add a little repair, a couple of screws, and you're fine. It's so damaged that actually you need a new one. A few months ago, I was at an intersection waiting for the light to turn green, and it turned green, and I hit the gas, and bang, the car would not move forward anymore. And so I, I'm sitting there, and thankfully not a lot of people were honking at me or anything like that. I, I was able to get off the road by putting it in reverse and getting off the road. I called a tow truck. They came, they towed my car, and brought it to the shop, and the mechanic said, I think it's your transmission, but let me take a closer look. And he took a closer look. And it was the transmission, all right? He said, it, it, it's beyond repair. In fact, what we're going to have to do is totally remake it. It's so badly damaged. And our hearts, on their own, are like my old transmission. <laughs> They're so damaged. They're so broken. It's not like you can just kind of tighten a few screws and fix it. You need a new heart, just like my car needed a new transmission. This is what Paul is talking about even in Ephesians 2, right at the beginning of that chapter, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're spiritually dead. It's not like we're just swooning. It's not like we're just unconscious, that like we've just fainted a little bit. We're dead, spiritually dead. And we need to be brought alive again. We need a new heart. We need to be reborn. And that's what Ezekiel 36 promises. God knew the condition of our heart. And he didn't, it's not like he was off on the side and he could care less. What he does, he's compelled by love to make promises and God always keeps his promises. Never lies. Never breaks a promise. And he says this in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God has promised to take out our broken, hard heart and replace it with a new one that's soft and tender to God, that loves God, that actually wants to do what it was made to do and love God. Jesus refers to this in the book of John when he's talking to Nicodemus. 
In John 3, Jesus answered him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Your heart is so blind, so dark, so broken, you can't even see the kingdom of God and the goodness of God. Nicodemus, confused, said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, not born again by your mom, born of the Spirit and of water, spiritually, not physically, unless that happens, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God has sent his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God would come and give us new hearts, new hearts that would be able to see God as he ought to be seen. Titus 3 verse 5 also says this. This is another letter that Paul wrote, and he says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God has kept his promise. He has given us the opportunity to have new hearts, new hearts that see God as he ought to be seen so that we would love God as our hearts were meant to love him. And not only do we rightly see God with a new heart, but we can actually start seeing our own sin in its right perspective, our need for forgiveness, our need for a savior. Not only does he give us a new heart, but he also promises to cleanse that heart. He says in, in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Everyone who trusts in Jesus has their heart cleansed and purified. That's why in 1 Peter 1, Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, your obedience to the, the command to believe the gospel of truth, because you've believed the gospel, your hearts have been purified. They've been washed clean. And now you're able to love your brother sincerely for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. God has given you a pure heart. And so from that pure heart, now that is the new source from which we can love one another and love God. He has cleansed this heart. He has purified this heart through the blood of his cross, through his shed blood on the cross, that when he took all of our sins, that stained our hearts. He paid for them all on the cross so that our hearts could be purified. Every sin of ours, every sin of yours and mine, past, present, and future, put them all on Jesus. And Jesus paid for them all so that he could purify our hearts. So what does that mean for us? It means that if we're trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we need to rightly see our new identity in Christ. This is so important. It's so important, the lenses through which you look at yourself in light of all that God has done. We need to get rid of these old ideas, these lies that we carry around with us that we're, you know, we're saved, but we're not really. I mean, we're, 
we're forgiven, but honestly, not really. Like, I'm, like I know God has rescued me, but honestly, I, I'm really just a sinner. I know I'm supposed to be new, but really nothing is new. And we carry this around with us, these lies that we carry around, and we need to get rid of that wrong way of thinking that at our core, we're really just the same old sinner. That's not what the gospel teaches. That's completely contrary to the truth of the gospel because the gospel says, God says that I've changed you. I've given you a new heart. I've cleansed your heart. It is pure now and you're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer a sinner at your core. You are a saint who's repenting of sin. Oh yes, you're repenting, but you are a saint. You're fundamentally new. You're a new creation in Christ. Don't disrespect his gospel by pretending you're something else. You are new. Your heart is new, and at your core, you want to cry, as Romans 8, 15, and 16 says that you want to cry, Abba, Father, because you love him at your core. And yes, we are tempted, and yes, there is a battle, but the battle is only more evidence that you're actually new. <laughs> the battle is only more evidence that you've actually been changed, that you actually have a new transmission because the body of your car is still rusting. The body of your car still wants sin. It still has sin, but the power of sin is broken. You have a new heart and you have a Holy Spirit who lives in your new heart that is strengthening your new desires that wants to love God and follow God, but your flesh wants to follow its sinful desires and satisfy its sinful cravings. And so... There's a war. There's a war that has been waged in the Christian life. And if you are experiencing the war this morning, it means that you're new. It means that you have a new heart. Not that you're not saved. Not that you're not changed. That you're really, nothing is new. That it's basically the same. That is a lie. The gospel has changed our identity. And the second radical change that God does is related to this one in the first. That not only has God given us a pure heart, but he's also given us a new basis for love, a good conscience. He's given us a new basis, a good, solid basis for love. And it's a good conscience. Again, verse five says that the aim of our charge is love that comes from, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience. Paul's saying here to Timothy that there's a way for him to do his ministry. And he's saying to us that there's a way for you to do life in such a way that at the end of the day, you can have a clear conscience. There's a proverb that says a, a clear conscience is a good pillow. And the reason why that is, is that if you have a clear conscience, then it doesn't speak to you at night and accuse you and keep you up and make you toss and roll and turn, reminding you of all the evil that you had done that day and the things that you had thought and the things that you had said and the things that you had done. A clear conscience makes a good pillow. But it also highlights the reality that this conscience is in all of us. 
Uh, it's like an internal lawyer. It's like we have this internal lawyer inside that is constantly either accusing or acquitting us, depending on some moral standard of right and wrong. And we all have this. We all have this internal lawyer, whether you're Richard Dawkins or whether you're a biology professor at a university who's an atheist, it doesn't matter. Every human being has this internal lawyer, this, the law of God written on their heart. And what is wrong with this internal lawyer is that it's been so demented by sin. It's been so corrupted. Even though God has put this on our hearts, even though we have some, some sense that you can go anywhere in the world, any culture, any language, any people group, everyone knows that there is this, this law that's written on their heart, but because of their sin, it is so demented and banged it up and twisted it and distorted it that the scripture says that the more we sin, we actually distort and defile our conscience, even to the point that we can sear it we can even sear our conscience. And that is in a bad, bad place. When that happens, when we get to that point, when we're searing our own conscience, it's as though, it's like we have a, a thermometer on the inside that no longer takes the temperature. It's completely useless. And we see this not only in the news, we see this in our own lives, this slow hardening, deadening effects to the weight of sin. The more we sin, the more we deceive ourselves to think, it's not really that bad. What I'm doing, it's, I mean, it's okay, really. I mean, everyone else is doing it, right? Even in our own country, there's laws that are passed that you can legally sin and do things, even though God's word is very clear that that is evil. And we can begin to sear our own conscience. And whether your conscience is seared or whether it's still functional enough that at night it still speaks to you and reminds you of the sin that you've done and it makes you toss and turn in bed. Either, either way, you're in a bad place because as scripture has said, and as we've sung this morning, that there will be a day when Jesus comes and he will judge every human being that has breathed oxygen on this globe and he will judge them and he won't need to look any further than your own conscience because our consciences already, already tell us that we're guilty, already convict us of sin, already accuse us of our disobedience. We are not surprised with Jesus' verdict. In fact, many people spend their entire lives suppressing what they already know, the judgment that is already coming. That is why Jesus, before that day, had to come before that day. Jesus, compelled by love, wanted to come and provide a way in which we could have our consciences cleared. He came so that we might have life and have life to the full, that we might have a conscience that is cleared so that our conscience could not only be cleansed but corrected by the gospel. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works 
the sin that we used to do, so that now we can serve the living God. This is the gospel. Hebrews 10 goes on to say then, let us draw near God with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Jesus came so that our conscience might be clear, that all the sin and the guilt and the shame and the fear that keeps us awake at night, that all might be wiped away, that all might be washed away by the blood of Christ because of what he's done on the cross and paying for all of your sins. It's right to fear God's judgment, but if you're trusting in Jesus, you need to know that Jesus has already paid for your judgment. He's taken all your sins upon himself and has cleansed you entirely so that you would have a clear conscience. But our conscience needs more than just cleansing. You know this yourself. I mean, you go and you have a bath or you have a shower. It's, it's not enough just to get cleaned up. Hopefully you're putting on new clothes or fresh clothes as well. And the same is for our conscience. Not only does our conscience need to be clean, but it needs to be clothed. Not only does it need to be cleansed, it needs to be credited something. It needs to be given something. We not only need to know that all the bad things that we've done have been erased, we need to know that we've been given a record of all the good things that have, someone has done. And we haven't done that. There's only one person that we can go to and look to for this kind of a record, this kind of a record that stands before God and says it's clean, it's clear. A record that is perfectly good. And that is the record of Jesus, his perfect life on earth. Jesus is the only one who never stayed awake at night, tossing and turning. He's the only one with a clear conscience who slept well at night because he was sinless. The Son of God never sinned. So his conscience was clear, and he perfectly obeyed the Father, so his conscience was good. And everyone who trusts in Jesus not only receives the forgiveness of sins, but they are given something. They're clothed. They're credited. They're given that record of perfect obedience, that righteousness that Jesus has won through a perfect life. Jesus now shares it with others so that we too might have a good conscience, not because of anything we'd done, but everything because of what Jesus did in giving us his righteousness. This is called justification. It means that you are declared right in God's sight so that your conscience is good. Romans 4 verse 5 says, and to the one who does not work, they don't try to work off their guilty conscience, trying to do enough good things to purge their guilty conscience. No, the one who does not work that way, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. By faith, we are justified By faith, we are forgiven. By faith, that same faith, we are clothed and given the righteousness of God. So that in God's sight, we have a clear conscience and a good conscience because it's been given to us in the Lord. And this is important because if you're a Christian and you do not believe in the full, robust understanding that you have been justified by grace through faith, 
then your conscience will keep being distorted and you'll keep believing lies. The lie like you're not really forgiven. That you really should still pretty feel a lot of guilt and shame for those sins that you've done. You should still feel God's condemnation over your soul because of the things that you've said and done that are wrong. If we don't believe the gospel, if we don't believe in justification by faith, then your conscience will keep telling you that lie and you'll buy into it and it'll change the whole way you view life. Or on the flip side, if you're a believer trusting in Jesus, but you're, you're not really kind of sold on this whole justification thing, then you will continue to believe the lie that your conscience will tell you because it's still not corrected by the gospel, that you've got to work. Yes, yes, he's cleaned you up, but now it's time to get back to work. You've got to earn your own righteousness. You've got to get back to the whole idea of trying to earn your own favor with God. Justification by faith, speaking and correcting the way your conscience functions and thinks will tell you, will get rid of that lie and it will tell you the truth that Jesus has done everything for you already. And now, now that he's done this for you, you can have a good conscience. We need to get rid of this idea that we're sort of forgiven and sort of new and sort of right in God's sight, but not really. I mean, sometimes... I don't know about you, but sometimes it just seems like there's a soundtrack playing in the back of your mind that keeps, you just keep playing over and over again. And it sounds something like this. God doesn't really love me. God's always disappointed in me. He's angry with me because, frankly, I'm angry with myself. I'm too guilty. I'm too ashamed. I've done too much, I've failed so much that I'm beyond forgiveness, I'm beyond love, I'm such a failure, but tomorrow I'll try harder. Tomorrow I'll do better. Tomorrow I'll work harder so that I can clean up my conscience and try to get right with God and maybe he'll accept me. Maybe he'll love me. You just kind of keep playing that on repeat over and over, just kind of that background tune. And that's exactly the kind of song that Satan wants you to listen to. He wants to just fix that on repeat. So you're constantly, when you wake up in the morning, that's what you're thinking. You're such a failure. God is so disappointed in you. I mean, I don't even know if you should really consider yourself a child of God. I mean, look at what you did yesterday. And that's exactly what Satan wants But that's why Jesus came so that you can change the track and begin speaking the gospel which is true and pushing out the lie that your flesh and the Satan wants to tell you and begin listening and believing the truth of the gospel, that you are new, that you're a child of God and that you've been justified, that all your sins have been forgiven if you're trusting in Christ and that he's given you a clear conscience and a good conscience because you stand right in God's sight justified in Christ you're already in his good books he already declares you right in his sight you're cleansed you're clothed and all of this by grace it's been given to each one of us by faith and it's from this good conscience 
that now we can love. Now we can love with this good conscience because now we're able to love not out of fear that I've got I've to be loving God so that I'm impressing him so that he'll let me into his presence or I don't have to love other people so as to appease my own conscience so I don't feel so bad because of the things I did for them last week, against them last week. No, our conscience is cleared. It's now fixed in Jesus. And so now from a good conscience, this is a new basis from which we can love. We're free to love God, not, be, not to earn a clear conscience, but because he's already given us a clear conscience. I'm free to love others. Whether they're my enemies or my friends, it doesn't matter if they are going to disrespect me or anything. I have a clear conscience now, a good conscience. I'm free to love them. A good conscience gives us a firm foundation, a firm basis from which real, authentic love can flow. And this takes faith, doesn't it? I mean, it takes faith to really believe the gospel that we're really have, we really have a new heart, a pure heart, that we really have a good conscience before God, that we're right with God, that we're right in his sight. It takes faith. And this is really the last, third radical change that we're gonna look at today that God has brought about, that has changed our situation. And that is this, that we can have a new fuel for love, a sincere faith a new fuel to love. And that is from a sincere faith. Love flows and comes from a sincere faith, just like water flows from a tap or fruit comes from a tree. Love flows from a sincere faith, but it has to be sincere. Sincerity or sincere literally means without hypocrisy, without duplicity. It's not two-faced. It's legit, it's real, it's authentic, it's genuine faith. It it matches, there's a matching that goes on between what is said and what is seen. Uh, The faith that is professed is consistent with the faith that is practiced. There's a walk and a talk that match. That is sincere faith. But it's not as though we're talking about Sincerity as perfection. Oh, no one's saying that sincere faith is perfect faith, that you've arrived, that you've got it all together, and now you're perfect. That's not what sincere faith is. Sincere faith, rather, is humble. It says, as it says in James 1.22, that it wants to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It, there wants to be a consistency there, but it's readily, it readily admits when it doesn't, it readily admits when there is an inconsistency. Sincere faith is transparent. It admits when it's wrong. It realizes that it needs the gospel every day, that it's still in process, that it's still growing, that it's still maturing, that it's still confessing, that it's still repenting. It's still moving ahead, step by step. That's real, genuine faith. That is sincere faith. Not only is this sincere faith one that is transparent, that keeps trusting in the gospel, but as it trusts the gospel, something comes, something flows, something is produced. This sincere faith fuels something, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 describe this fruit. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, sorry, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we continue to believe the gospel, this is what flows from sincere faith. Now, it's good to realize here that this is one fruit that's being spoken of. Sometimes we can think of the fruit of the Spirit wrongly, and we kind of think of it as individual fruit that the Spirit produces in our life, like you know the pomegranate of peace, and the pear of patience, and the, the apple of joy, and sometimes there's a lot of apples, but not a lot of pears, and there's a little bit of this, and a lot of that, and none of this, and that's not what the text is saying. The word fruit is very intentionally singular. It is the fruit of the Spirit, so that all of these characteristics, all of these qualities are like flavors in one fruit. You either get them all or you get none of them. That the Spirit will produce this one kind of fruit that has all of these characteristics and qualities or you'll have none of them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It's not as though you can have uh, love without goodness because you can't have something like evil love. That's just an oxymoron. You can't have uh, patience without kindness. Uh, you can't have this, this cruel patience. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Oxymoron. That's why these things, they go together. Because when something is loving, it's also good. When something's good, it's, it's very kind. And something that's kind is very patient. Something patient is very peace, peaceable. They all go together. And sometimes... As we trust Jesus, even with the, the mustard seed of faith, just with a little faith, that fruit is born. It might be a small, wee little apple, but as we continue to trust Jesus and that, as we continue to believe the gospel, that fruit is produced more and more of, in our life. The, the Spirit of God, as we walk step by step, continuing to trust the gospel, continuing to trust the gospel, that fruit is born in our life. And it becomes, it moves from little, uh, little apples to big, big pumpkins in our life. There's, there's this growth that happens. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in our life. And this fruit is beautiful. This fruit is beautiful. It, it, it's wonderful to look at and it's wonderful to taste. It's wonderful to look at when you go to Harvest Kids and you drop your kids off and you see it is not a good day in Harvest Kids and you see these workers who are serving these children and even though it's so hard, they're trusting in the gospel. They're believing in the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit is being born in their life and they're loving these kids and they're loving these parents. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to see. Kids love seeing this in their parents when you know, they know that things are tight at home, maybe money's tight and work is stressful and the house is a mess, but they see their parents continuing to trust Jesus and believe the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit is born so that they begin speaking tenderly and kindly towards one another, lovingly, patiently. Kids love seeing that in their parents. They love to see the fruit of the Spirit. 
Oh, and the fruit of the Spirit tastes so good. When you know that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you've tasted the fruit of the Spirit in your own life. When you look back, maybe you're in a situation right now, something has not gone the way you had hoped. And there's this temptation to do stuff that you used to do six, 12 months ago. You would have said that. You would have done that in sin. But now, now you are moved to keep trusting the gospel, to keep believing the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is causing this new fruit to be born in your life so you're responding to that person differently. You're saying new things. You're responding in new ways. And you're, you're amazed. You're thinking, this, this is incredible. This is nothing short of supernatural. This is a miracle. Because it is. God is working in your life as you continue from a sincere faith, trusting in him. The fruit of the Spirit is born in your life and love is what holds all of that together. A sincere faith fuels this radical, supernatural love. This sincere faith produces a love that actually fulfills the law of Christ, which is love. Romans 13 verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 1 John 4 goes on to say that we love because he first loved us. John 15 then highlights how Jesus says, so love one another just as I have loved you. This is the law of Christ. And when we have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, we are now able to do what we were made to do, what we were saved to do, to love God, to set our aim, the aim of our love on him, and to love others just as Jesus has loved us. And none of these things, none of these things came from our own doing. It's not like we got all the, the gumption up to do and accomplish all of this on our own. It was given to us. We had to be loved first before we could love anyone else. Before we could love God and others, we had to be loved first in the gospel. And then now with the gospel, we're able to love God and others and do exactly what Psalm 16 is calling us to do and reminding us to do, to set the Lord always before me so that my heart may be glad and my whole being rejoice. So I want to ask the same question. What are you aiming at? What are you aiming for in your life. Maybe you're someone here and you know your aim and target is way off. You've been running from target to target, always discouraged, always feeling empty, wandering, because you know your sights and aim are not set on God. You need to know that God has done everything necessary for you to have a new heart, to get a new transmission, to get the whole inside of you replaced so that at your core you can begin loving God from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he will help you. All you do is trust in Jesus. Just turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and trust him and he will do the rest. He'll do the rest. And if you are a believer this morning and you know that you're trusting in Jesus but 
honestly, there just, there just seems to be this pattern where you're, you're slipping and sputtering in your faith and you're, you're always just getting out of target and it's just hard to get Jesus in your scope. You need to know that God has a hold of you, that you're a child of God, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that he's with you always. He's there to help you get your eyes back on Jesus, always prompting you to trust and believe the gospel, to really believe what he's already given you, to really believe that you are who he's made you to be, and to begin living out your new identity in him. And when your eyes are on Jesus and you realize all that he's given you in the gospel, then the love flows. The love for God flows. The love for others flow. And we begin to do what we were made to do. Loving God and loving each other. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Who else could have come up with this kind of a plan? Lord, we were dead in the road. We were broken with no gears to move forward, no heart to do so. We could only go in reverse and stray and sin and target these things of the world and only be disillusioned and disappointed. But God, you came and remade us and you've made a way for us to be remade. You've made a way for us Lord God, to have a pure heart and a good conscience before you being justified and a sincere faith that's legit, that's transparent, that isn't pretending to be more holier than it really is, but is honestly clinging to the gospel day by day, believing that we are who you say we are and that you've done what you've promised to do in our hearts. So God, I pray, Lord God, for every person here whether they're trusting in Jesus already or if they haven't trusted in Jesus yet, that you would get their eyes on Jesus. Father, would you turn every heart to you so that in seeing Christ and the goodness of the gospel and seeing and receiving your love, God, we would respond in love. We would sing of your love. We would be free to love to the very end as you did. In Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.